Amen. Lord, that's our prayer tonight. We want to hear your words, not the opinion of men. It's a word of God that transformed lives. And so we ask in Jesus' name, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, you touch every single person who's here. We're all here by divine appointment, Lord. And we just thank you that the word of God is living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. I pray, Father God, it would cut right to the heart of every person who's here. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 25. We're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Before we do that, I did want to mention a couple things to you. Uh, number one, if you're new to Calvary Chapel, you may not know this, but we so support more in, in uh, prayer and other things like that than anything else. There's a, a, a man I met a few years back. He was planning a church in upstate New York. We've flown him out here for a few conferences. He's spoken here on Wednesday nights. His name's Scott Lumley, and it's Calvary Chapel of Corinth, just like Corinth in the Bible, so it's easy to remember. But he's planning a church in upstate New York, and I had the privilege to go out and do a men's retreat with them and a bunch of other Calvary chapels in upstate New York this last Sunday. That's why I wasn't here. But uh, be praying for them. God's doing a work, but, you know, it's a pretty remote place, and uh, just be praying for them. God's, and pray that God will continue to give them vision and wisdom and direction as they reach the people of upstate New York. Secondly, um, if you guys were here a few weeks ago, on Sunday morning we prayed for Lena Quidisall. She left for China, and it's, it's very easy for us to have someone be out of sight and out of mind. But Lord, help us not to do that. This young woman's gone halfway around the world and we got an uh, email today that, you know, she'll be teaching English there, but using that to, to plug people into the underground church. So she's meeting her class tomorrow. And so she asked that we would pray for her. So I want to pray for her now, but I want you to remember to pray for her as well. Maybe put her name on a piece of paper and stick it on your fridge. I know we get some inserts if you, and we'll have one with uh, info on her coming up, but pray for her. Continue to pray for uh, Brenton, who's in, in Latvia. He and his family planting a Calvary Chapel there. Continue to pray for our GFA missionaries. And so let's, let's go to the Lord right now, and then we'll get into His Word. Heavenly Father, we do pray for those who, who've responded to Your call to step out in faith, to leave their comfort zone, and go to a great distance away, Lord, to a people they don't know, to reach them for Your kingdom. Father, I pray your blessing will be upon them. Lord, I pray for Lena tomorrow, that you would just pour out your spirit upon her. Father, I pray you give her a, just a supernatural discernment as to know how to reach those, those precious people in her class. Lord, I pray that you would do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Father, I pray also for Brenton and Latvia, Lord, as he's planning a church there. May your hand be upon him and his family as well. May you continue to draw people to that church, Father God, who can hold up his hands, and Lord, may they impact that country for your kingdom. We continue, Lord, to lift up the GFA missionaries as well, and the great work they're doing in India and Nepal, and Father God, I pray, Father, you be with them, you protect them, you watch over them, you speak boldly through them. And Lord, for us, may we remember that when we walk out this door that we're missionaries too, to the city of Santa Cruz. Lord, and may we not be ashamed of the gospel here in this town that so desperately needs you. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. 1 Samuel 25. So it's been a few weeks since we've been in 1 Samuel. Just to catch you up, remember that we've come to the point where David is being, you know, God is working on young David's heart, preparing him to be king. Thus far we saw that David was a man after God's own heart. He was humble. He was anointed king of Israel. He slayed a giant. And then in the midst of all that, as he's being faithful to serve God, King Saul comes against him. King Saul starts throwing spears at him. David doesn't throw them back. He keeps honoring God. And then we see that David, again, time after time, God is bringing, allowing trials to come into his life to prepare him for something greater. Guys, without a test, we have no testimony. Without the trials of life, we will not grow the way that we could. So when we look at trials, we need to look at them the way that God wants us to, to realize that God allows those things in our lives to conform us more into his image. So here's David. He's ripped out of his comfort zone. He's removed not only from his family, but then he goes and he's serving before the king. Spears are thrown at him. Finally, he flees from there for his life. King Saul makes his number one focus in life to go out and kill David. He even uses, tries to use his own daughter and his own son who side with David. 
And as we know, continually, as this continues to happen, David continues to see that, okay, God knows what he's doing, but I need to trust him. And, you know, David, for the most part, up to this point, we get to the chapter tonight, has honored God. We do know at one point, though, out of fear, he lied, remember, to Ahimelech, and it ended up 85 priests died, and all the people in the city were killed. And hopefully he had learned from that lesson. And, and then last chapter that we looked at a few weeks back, we saw that David had an opportunity to kill King Saul. And, you know, his guys were cheering him on. At this point, he's got 600 men with him. They're hiding out in caves because they're afraid of King Saul. And all of a sudden, by chance, there's no chance in the kingdom of God, amen? There's no luck, there's no chance, there's no consequences, none of that. As they're hiding in this cave, who comes into the cave to relieve himself but King Saul? And if you've ever been more vulnerable in your life, I don't know when that would be, right? But literally, he gets caught with his pants down, right? And as he's in the cave, all of his guys say, David, here it is, kill him. This is the opportunity we've been praying for. Look what God's brought us. And David, instead of killing him, he did draw his sword out, no doubt. The guys were getting excited. But instead of cutting his throat, he reaches out and just cuts the hem of his robe. So you'll remember then, after Saul left, David cried out to him and said, I could have killed you, O king, and held up the hem of the garment. And King Saul responds and says, you know what, David, you truly are going to be the king. And David, when you become king, will you promise that you'll bless my family? And Saul is blown away. But at the end of the last chapter, what happened? Saul went back to the palace and David went back to the cave. You would think at that point, finally, even Saul's acknowledged he's going to be the king. But still, God had more he wanted to do in the life of David to prepare him to be the king that he wanted him to be. So, the same is true for every one of us. We go through trials. It's all preparation for what's next. And so for David, he has now seemingly passed a great test. He seems to be doing very well, even when the guys around him, remember, they started off indebted. They become his mighty men later. They're not so mighty yet, okay? They're, they're encouraging him to do ungodly things. But now he's got these men. He goes back to the cave, and that's where we pick up, or goes back to the, you know, to the wilderness as opposed to going up into the palace with the king. But now we're going to see in tonight's text that David, God's still got more he wants to do in his heart. And we're going to see how he responds to being unfairly treated. And we're going to see that David, while he is a man after God's own heart, he's very much like you and me. God does not hide the frailties of his heroes in Scripture, and aren't you glad? Amen? If everybody was Daniel, we'd just walk around bummed all the time, right? Because we would go, that man, and I'll never be Daniel. But here's the truth. You look at a guy like David, and you see, or Peter, or some of these guys who are used mightily by God, that they're not perfect. They're available. They're men after God's own heart. They make mistakes, but God continues to use them as they come through a time of repentance. So in this chapter, we're going to see in preparation to be king, he's going to continue to be treated unfairly, and we're going to see how he responds. He's responded really well to King Saul treating him unfairly, but how is he going to respond when it's not the king? You know, sometimes it's easy for us to respect someone who's in a position of great authority, but how do we respond to someone that we view in our mind is at our level or in our mind below? By the way, no one's below us, but if in our mind we thought of that, how would we respond? Would it be different? We're going to see in David's heart tonight that indeed it is. He's going to allow the harsh and ungodly actions of others to stir up a fleshly response, and we can learn not only examples to follow, but examples not to follow. And David was humble and godly in his response to King Saul. But as we're going to see tonight, that's not is what is not going to happen. Now, in the next two weeks, we're going to see two different responses to David. And we also can learn from them. Tonight, we're going to look at a man by the name of Nabal. And next week, in the second half of the chapter, we're going to look at Abigail. And Abigail and Nabal, though they're married, are, are incredibly different. And because of that, we're going to see a total contrast in how they respond to David. And I believe we see a picture in them how people respond to the son of David, our Messiah. Some come with arrogance and attitude and some come broken. And you know what? The only way we're going to be saved is if we come broken before him. So we're going to see this man after God's own heart that he doesn't always respond in a godly way and praise God for his word that through the examples of others, we can learn a great deal. So if you're a note taker tonight, I titled the message, a fleshly, a fleshly Response from a Godly King. A fleshly response from a godly king. I know none of you, though you're born-again Christians, ever respond in your flesh, but 
in case any of you ever did, this is a great example tonight for all of us to learn from. And it's not a cop-out saying it's okay, but it's an example for all of us. So we're going to see the potential stumbling blocks that can provoke our flesh. First, we're going to see losing a friend or a family member, someone who's close to us, who is our encourager, our source of fellowship and accountability. Sometimes when we lose somebody near to us, or maybe somebody in a high spiritual position falls, we can fall into the temptation of just kind of, oh, well, getting upset with God and being provoked to walk in our flesh. I pray we will learn tonight that that's not God's will. Number two, dealing with harsh and evil people. Does anybody else ever have their flesh pop up when you're dealing with someone who's evil or harsh? Amen? So we're going to see that in David. Being treated unfairly, number three, a potential stumbling block. Number four, being disrespected and insulted. And then finally, we're going to see how David responds in the flesh. Now next week, we're going to see how God, in the midst of David totally blowing it, being off track, two guys, you know, caught up in their flesh, and God's going to bring, ladies, you're going to love this, God's going to bring a woman into the middle of it to get him back on track. And some of you guys... That's what your wife does often, I'm sure. Amen? You know, they're there to bring us back, to get our eyes centered, to get our eyes focused, and we start, you know, sticking our chest out, trying to be a guy. And that's what we're going to see next week. We'll get a glimpse of it beginning tonight. So, a fleshly response from a godly king. We're going to see next week the woman God uses to get him back on track. Potential stumbling box that can, that can provoke our flesh. The Bible tells us we need to die daily. And our flesh wants to rise up. And as long as you're carrying this body around, there's going to be a battle between the spirit and the flesh. Let's take a look. It says, then Samuel died. Now this is just after the report of him cutting the robe. Saul saying, you know what? You're going to be the king. You really are. God's hand is upon you. David, you're such a better man than me. Saul goes back to the palace. David goes back to the cave. And as he's there, it says right there, it says, then Samuel died. Now, the death of Samuel does some several things. Number one, it brings the end to the period of the judges in Scripture. He's the last of the judges. The first was Othniel, the last Samuel. Now, as Samuel dies and the judges pass away, we're now moving into the time of the kings. Again, preparation because Saul is the king, but David is the anointed king. David is God's man. And God... You know, at Samuel's time, he's been a great man. He's been used mightily by God, but God is preparing the way for David to be the king. Now, what do we know about Samuel, just briefly? We know he was a mighty man of God. Remember that his mom prayed for him, and Eli thought his mom was drunk. Hannah's out there praying for a son. He thought she was drunk, you know, because nobody was praying much. So when someone prayed, he didn't even recognize what it looked like. We know his own sons were a disaster. We know that we know that Samuel, as a small, as a young boy, heard the voice of God and responded to him. You know, sometimes we think you got to be a certain age for God to speak to us. And you know what? The Lord is speaking all the time. And often it's when we come with that childlike faith that we hear him most clearly. God spoke to him and, and ministered through him all of his life. He was a prophet. He was a man of prayer. And he spent his final years presiding over a college of prophets. And so this is a man that lived his entire life set apart unto the Lord. God uses him mightily and he dies. And you know what? When that happens, certainly there is a time of mourning. But you know what? As we're going to see, Israel lamented Samuel. But what I find curious about it, they lament him, but they didn't really listen to him when he was around. You know, he's, you know, he'd come and exhort them and they'd kind of listen or they didn't listen at all. And it's amazing how when somebody dies, we finally start to pay homage to them. You know what? If God's got people in our lives today that God's speaking through, let's not wait till they're dead to heed their counsel. Amen? And so this is Samuel, right? And not only does it say this, I want to say, I love this guy. You know what? He began collecting treasure for Solomon's temple. He remembered the Passover to keep Israel's remembrance of the deliverance. In Psalm 99 and Jeremiah 15, they speak of him as being a great intercessor. So his mom was a woman of prayer and Samuel was a young man of prayer. And in Hebrews 11, he's listed in the hall of faith. Now, that's Samuel. So certainly, him dying would be a blow to all of Israel, but my personal opinion, I believe it was a great blow to David. Because David was anointed king by Samuel. David has now been on the run, and one of the guys he's gone to and sought out is Samuel, and now Samuel is no more. He's in heaven. 
He's no longer on the earth. He's in the presence of Almighty. See, he's gone. David has one less person to turn to. And it says there, And the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. So Samuel's death was indeed a loss for the entire nation, as I said. And this faithful man of God was a clear contrast to their ungodly king. And they mourned for him when he died. And as I said, they didn't really listen to him when he was alive. But then look what it says. They buried him at his home in Ramah, and David arose. I do not believe that's there by chance. Of course it's not. It's the Bible, and it's always perfect. Amen? But Samuel dies, and David arose. And you know what? God's ministry doesn't end with a man. Amen? God chooses to use men and women, but the truth is, He doesn't even need us. He chooses to use us because he's a great and awesome God. and He loves to use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Amen? You're being used by God. Don't get too puffed up. Remember that verse. You're a foolish thing if God's using you. Amen? But notice this. It doesn't die with a man. Samuel dies. Samuel dies and everybody could have just, oh. The only, you know, we got a King Saul, who they asked for, by the way was never God's plan. Samuel warned them not to have him be king, but they cried out anyway, and it's not working out so well. But here's the point. It's God passing the baton, in a sense, from Samuel to David. David is going to be the, tr- the first true king over Israel, though Saul's you know, in the position at that moment, and this is all preparation in the life of David. Samuel, a mighty man of God, used mightily by God, but God's work would not end with him. David is going to be God's man. He's going to replace Samuel as a spiritual leader in Israel. Those of you who know much about Calvary Chapel, some of you I know know a great deal, some of you don't know anything, and that's okay. Because we're not about Calvary Chapel, we're about Jesus Christ, amen? But you know what? The founder of Calvary Chapel, the man God used, it was God who did it, but he used the man, his name's Chuck Smith, and you know what? He's He's now 80 years old. And if the Lord tarries, there will be a time when he will go to be with the Lord. And you know what? I know I personally will weep when he does. But at the same time, it doesn't end with a man. And my prayer for us is the movement of Calvary Chapel is that Jesus Christ is the head, not any man. And you know what? I pray and I believe our best days can be in front of us rather than behind us, even though God's done an incredible work. Because our God's not done until he gets back. Amen? And so we need to be busy about it. And so Samuel's gone. And no doubt in David's heart, it could have brought struggle. Now, let me say this too. It may not be that that person dies. It may be that person falls. Maybe there's somebody that you look up to spiritually and that person falls and it destroys your faith. Let me encourage you with something. If any person falling destroys your faith, you've got your faith in the wrong person. Amen? Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He will never fail you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never, ever let you down. I will. Other pastors will. The Billy Graham, all those guys, they're sinners in need of a Savior. That's all we are. And we're vessels he chooses to use. And they could have just been blown away. Oh, no, Samuel's not here. What in the world are we going to do? And look what it says. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Paran. Some of your translations say Maon. So there's the southern territory of Judea stretching between Sinai and the border of Palestine. And even after Saul's latest proclamation, end of the last chapter, you know, I know that you shall surely be king. Notice that David is still in the wilderness. Some of you might feel like you've been in the wilderness spiritually for a long time. And you want to know, when in the world am I going to arrive where I'm going? When God says so, that's when. Amen? And God's always right on time. And you need to understand that while David's in the wilderness God is using him. Ministry is not a destination. It's a way of life. We're all in it. We're all called. And God wants to use us in the midst of the trial. We're all always looking to get out of the trial so we can be used by God. But often, it's in the middle of it that he uses us the most. So David is still unable to rejoin his people. Instead, he goes a great distance into the wilderness, further away from Saul, well as well as from his family, the place of sacrifice and worship. And while Samuel's death, again, was a great loss for Israel, I believe it was a greater loss still for David personally. This was the one guy he could turn to, along with Jonathan. I think these are the two men that had the greatest impact on his life. And now he has no contact with any of them. The only guys he's got around him are the indebted guys who are discouraged and disgruntled. That's his folks. 
That's who he's got. All the guys who are whining and complaining and moaning and hating life. That's who he's got around him. And you know what? God's going to use him to turn them in to the mighty men of God. So he's in the wilderness. He's running for his life. And now he loses a godly man that he looked up to. While a, a potential stumbling block, it is in times when one we look up to falls or, or dies or moves away that we need to look directly to the Lord. Sometimes God will remove that person so we'll look to Him instead. Amen? Sometimes God will move somebody that you, you keep looking to them. you got to call them eight times a week and get counsel. And again, we should be counseling one another. But you better be looking up more than you look around. Amen? But instead of looking always to somebody else to get counsel from, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you better be seeking the mighty counselor first. Go to him first. And sometimes we get so attached to somebody, God will just transfer them across country. Right? I just got a job transfer. I'm gone. What am I going to do? Look up. Amen? (laughs) Quit looking around and start looking up. So, a potential stumbling block that can provoke our flesh a lost friend, a lost source of fellowship, encouragement, and accountability. Number two, dealing with harsh and evil people. Look at verse two. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. Now Carmel, this is not the Mount Carmel of Elijah calling fire down from the sky. Though if you go to Israel with us, we will be at Mount Carmel and we'll teach on that very topic sitting there. This is a town in the, in the mountains on the west side of the Dead Sea, south of Hebron. And it says, there was this man there, and this man was very rich. Now let me say this about riches. There's four different types of riches that you can have. You can have riches in what you have. You can have riches in what you do. You can have riches in what you know. And more importantly, you can have riches in who you are. The riches of character. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking what I believe to be the lowest riches on that totem pole and making it the highest one. The riches in what you have. Because as we're going to see, this man was physically rich, but he was spiritually bankrupt. And I'll tell you what, as a, you know, as a dad, as a husband, you know what I want more for my kids than anything else? Sometimes we look at our children and we think they're really successful if they've got a really good job. I'll tell you what, I pray constantly. Don't let my kids have a job that's so good that it takes their eyes off of you. Lord, you know what? If they have to dig ditches to love you, then hand them a shovel. Amen? You know, whatever it takes, Lord, to keep their eyes on you. And this guy has so much wealth that he starts to think it's all about him. And this is what can happen. We can be, you know, worldly wealthy and spiritually bankrupt. And that's exactly what type of man this is. He has no richness in his character. So what kind of riches does he have of these, of these four I've listed? Look what it says. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Now in those days, this guy's loaded. He's got 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was very rich, not in what he did, not in what he knew, not in who he was, but in what he possessed. And again, I believe this is the lowest form of riches. This is the type of riches that Jesus describes in Matthew 19, as a potential obstacle to the kingdom of God. Now, while it's not impossible for a rich man to enter into heaven, but riches can be something that make it harder to walk with God. The Bible, you know, Jesus said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. How do you know if a rich man really gets it? A rich man gets it if he understands the riches aren't his, they're God's. He, underst- he doesn't possess possession, you know, possessions don't possess him. He has them, but he uses them for God's glory. And he'll be a man who will take God's riches and use them to minister to other people. He will hold them lightly in his hand. His focus and his passion in life will not be the accumulation of wealth, but a desire to draw nearer to the Lord. And he will see his wealth as belonging to the Lord. His faith is not based on the size of his bank account. You know what? All of us in this room, compared to the rest of the world, are wealthy. You're all rich. Well, Pastor Dave, you don't know where I live. Well, if you've got a refrigerator with some food in it, you're wealthy. Amen? Because much of the country, much of the world does not have that. And so since we are, what kind of stewards are we being with what God puts in our hands? Guys, may we not have any more than 
If one nickel, if we have a nickel too much, it's going to take our eyes off of God. I pray all the time, Lord, don't give me any more financial security than I can handle and keep my eyes on you. Guys, that should be our heart. And so we see this, this man who does not have this heart of generosity as we're going to see. Let's take a look at his attributes of this man's character. Let's see what he does with his great wealth that he has in his hands. How does he use it? Who does he try to glorify with it? it says there, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now that just means it was harvest time. They bring all the sheep in and they're shearing the sheep to get the wool from them. At that time they would, they would slaughter some of the sheep and goats as well and, and have a, a great feast. And so he's having this harvest time, which was a great celebration. When they would have a feast and people would come together and they would make merry, it would be this great time, this wonderful time of finally of all the year's work having a time to celebrate the abundance that God provided. So how does this man celebrate? He brings him in, he's shearing the sheep, and it says here, look at the contrast between this man and his wife. Don't even look at their spouse after I read this, by the way, but here's what it says. The name of the man was Nabal. Now Nabal means fool. So I'm assuming he earned this name and his parents didn't give it to him. I, you know, I don't know anybody that hates their kid that much. You know what I mean? You know what? Uh, these are my sons, stupid, you know, disobedient and fool. I mean, you know, if you name your kids that, you're, you're in trouble because you're probably going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. I have an idea that Nabal earned this name. I don't know that for sure, but I think he earned it. I think people saw his life and they started calling him Nabal and that became his name. And so this is, to me, an indication of his character. And in the culture, their names are often connected with a person's character. So we're going to see his character indeed matches his name. So the name of the man was Nabal. And it says, and the name of his wife was Abigail. Now, Abigail means insight or the joy of her father. What a great name. Abigail, the joy of her father. Now, like her foolish husband, she's going to live up to her name. Nabal's going to prove to be a fool, and she's going to prove to have insight and be a woman who would be the joy of any father. And the two of them are married to each other. Every time I read this text, I think, how in the world did this happen? How did Abigail get Nabal? Now, let me explain something to you. Back in those days, they had arranged marriages. So if you're married to a Nabal today, that's your fault. Amen. I mean, you didn't wait on the Lord. You didn't pray. You didn't see God. You just went out there moving in the flesh. Now, I believe that her dad may have picked Nabal because Nabal had money. And sometimes dads think that their daughters are doing well if they marry a rich guy. You know what I wanted for my daughter is a godly guy. And you know what? Praise God. She, that's exactly what she got. They're on their honeymoon, and you know what? He loves the Lord, and I, I'll tell you what, I couldn't have written down better specifications for my son-in-law. I am so blessed. And I know her parent, that his parents feel the same way about my daughter. That's what happens when God's at work. If we wait upon the Lord and we trust in Him and let God bring us our spouse. But sadly here, no doubt this was an arranged marriage, and Abigail gets stuck with a Nabal. But I want you to see something. That Abigail has a Nabal, but Abigail is going to continue to be a godly wife. You're going to see her continue to, to intercede on behalf of him. If you're married to someone who's not saved, pray for him. Amen? If you're, if you're, a, woman, if you're a man married to a woman who's not saved, pray for her. Be a godly example. And that's exactly the kind of woman that Abigail is going to be. And it says of her, and she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. So she was a woman of character and wisdom and beauty. There's only two other women in the entire Old Testament where these words, beautiful appearance, are used. Rachel was one of them. Esther was the other. And the third was Abigail. I find it interesting that Jacob worked 14 years to marry Rachel. She must have been really beautiful. Right? And the king who could have had any woman he wanted, any woman he wanted, picked Esther. So that means Nabal got a, a Rachel Esther type of woman. And yet he's a Nabal. <laughs> it doesn't seem right. I bet people walk by and go, dude, Nabal, Abigail, what's up with that? And you know what? We're going to see David kind of respond that way. 
You're going to see it really next week. David's going to be quick about it too. You'll watch and you'll see. But here's the point. The point is that this is a woman of character and yet she's in a, a marriage that's a disaster. But you know what? If you find yourself there, do not be of despair. Keep your eyes on Jesus and you be about ministering to your spouse. Amen? For some of you, you're the only Jesus your spouse is ever going to see. And you live for Him. Don't bail out, work it out. Amen? You stay, you serve God. That's God's highest. It's God's will. And you know what? What I love is to see marriages turned right side up for Jesus Christ. Now, this marriage was arranged, and now we're going to learn a little bit about Nabal's character. So here she is. She's this woman of understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was harsh and he was evil. The word harsh in Hebrew there means cruel, hard, heavy, rough, stiff, stubborn. Don't look at your husband. But you know what I mean? What a rough list, amen? She's married to cruel, hard, heavy, rough, stiff, stubborn. That's her husband, Nabal. No wonder his name's Nabal. No wonder his name means fool. Not only is he harsh, but he's evil. The word evil there means wretched, wicked, wrong, or troublesome. So let me give you the list again. Cruel, hard, heavy, rough, stiff, stubborn, wretched, wicked, wrong, troublesome. That's her husband. You thought you had it bad. This is her husband, Nabal. He indeed is a fool. He's a man of great physical wealth, but he is bankrupt of character. He is spiritually bankrupt. You know what? You cannot get to heaven by accumulating wealth. And guys, when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Nothing else is going to matter. Nobody, you know, nobody's going to be in heaven impressed with how much money you made. It's going to be irrelevant. And guys, what will matter in heaven is what we've done for the kingdom of God. Now watch this part. This part is interesting to me because look what it says about him. He's harsh. He's evil. His name means fool. And look at this. He was of the household of the house of Caleb. Wait a minute. How did the fool come out of the house of Caleb? As you know, if you've been going to church for any length of time, I love Caleb. Because Caleb flat out rocks. If you read about Caleb, you know, Caleb was one of the two spies that came back with a good report. When everybody else wanted to bail, Caleb came back and said, hey, let's go get him. If you'll remember, the entire generation passed away except Joshua and Caleb. 45 years later, Caleb still remembers God's promise. And when they're dividing up the lots to go into the land of promise, he said, God promised me the land of the thick-necked people, and I want it. Now, he's 85. And he wants the land of the thick, the Anakim, the thick-necked people. You know what? If I was 85, I would want the rocking chair on the Mediterranean and a bag of chips. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Retirement time. I'm 85. You young guys go get the giants. And Caleb goes in and he says he takes the land of the giants. It's also filled with fortresses. He goes up there and wipes the giants out. 85 Caleb. Finishing strong. This guy's related to that guy. What happened? You know what's interesting? Caleb then would not allow his daughter to be married to anybody unless the guy would go down and kill some giants himself. And I love that picture because, being a dad, I love that picture because he said, you, go, you know, if a guy will go down and slay some giants, he can marry my daughter. And I have an idea, when the guys went down to slay the giants, he probably just prayed, okay, Lord, if it's not the guy, kill him. Just kill him. But, but you know what's awesome? He could have killed the giants himself, but he let... Othniel went down and slayed the giants. When Othniel came back, he gave his daughter to Othniel to marry. Because a giant killer wants a giant killer for his daughter as well. Amen? A godly man wants a godly man for his daughter. And what's awesome, when you get to Judges chapter 1, and it lists the first judge of Israel, it's Othniel. And where did he learn to be a godly man? From his godly father-in-law. Man, I love that. What a great story. This guy's related to Caleb. How do you get a Nabal out of that family? You got Caleb and Othniel, Nabal down here. You know what this shows us, guys? You can't get to heaven because your parents are godly. God has no grandchildren. God's not impressed that your grandmother was a missionary. Praise God for her. God's, God's going to bless her for that, but it's not going to do you any good if you don't get right with God. Amen? 
We all have to have our own faith, our own walk, our own relationship with the Lord. My biggest prayer is that my relationship with God, my, I want my kids to have a greater relationship with God than I do, that's apart from me, that they'll be on fire for Him, that they give it away to that next generation. Here's Caleb. I don't, this is a relative of his, and he's a Nabal. He's a fool. So, here's this man that David's going to be interacting with. And this is a man who's harsh and he's evil. And we're going to see how he can be and will be a potential stumbling block for this man of God. And again, I want to say this. We should not be surprised when people who don't know God act like they don't know God. Amen? Dogs bark. That's what dogs do. People who don't know God act like they don't know God. Nabal is a fool and he's going to act like it. He's going to be a self-centered man who doesn't care about others, who, who, you know, you couldn't talk to him for five minutes without him insulting you, who would refuse to acknowledge God, who will take credit for, for all of his physical wealth. And you know, the Bible says in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Amen? So this is a sign of where he, his name means fool, and he's a man who acts like there's no God and we shouldn't be surprised. But we're going to see that he, he is someone who, who is going to be a potential to cause uh, David to stumble. And he's going to cause him to stumble. So a fleshly response from a godly king, a potential stumbling blocks, number one, a lost friend, someone that you looked up to spiritually. Number two, dealing with harsh and evil people. Number three, being treated unfairly. Look at verse four. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, greet him in my name. So while they were hiding out in the wilderness, as we're about to see, David and his men took on the job of protecting the flocks of Nabal. What was David's job before he got anointed, even after he was anointed king? What did he do with this time? He was a shepherd. And now these are, sheep are brought into the area where he is, and he takes it upon himself to help protect the sheep, both from the wild animals, but also from the Philistines and others who would come around and raid them. And he was protecting and watching over the sheep that belonged to Nabal. And now word comes back that they're shearing the sheep. So after all this time of watching the sheep and caring for the sheep, some of them are going to be slaughtered for meat, and most of them are just going to have the wool removed from them. And David has helped in this process to protect the sheep. So if you work and you care and you're involved for an entire year, when the time comes for the, you know, the payment to come, it's not you know, out of line for David to expect that he, he and his 600 hungry men might at least be fed. And so that's David's heart. And so he's going to ask something very simple. So again, these were no doubt hungry men. But notice this. I want you to notice that they didn't go out and just take some of the sheep. You think they could have done that? Those 600 guys came running down the hill. Those whatever shepherds were watching those sheep would have run away. Or if they hadn't, they would have died trying, right? And David could have gone down and just grabbed up some sheep and said, Hey, look at the 3,000 sheep. He didn't do that. Instead, he protected them. He honored God. He was being a faithful man. And how is he going to be treated by this man? Now that harvest time is coming, he hears that Nabal is reaping and you know, feasting upon the prophets. David's going to send his men down just to ask for whatever Nabal is willing to give him. Look at verse 6 through 8. And thus you shall say to him, Go down and greet him in my name. Thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shears. Your shepherds were with us, we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants, and to your son, David. So what is he asking for? He doesn't go down and overpower Nabal. He doesn't demand anything. He simply asks for what rightfully should be his. And note again, he's humble and he's kind in the way he approaches Nabal. Now, 
So look in verse 6. First he speaks a blessing upon Nabal's home. May your home be blessed. Verse 7. He reminds him the care he gave for his property. And then, look at this humility. This is the anointed king of Israel sending word to Nabal the fool. And look what he says in verse 8. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and your son, David. David refers to his men as servants of Nabal and himself as a son to Nabal. He is humble. He's not demanding anything. He's done a good work to protect Nabal. And you know what? During the time of feast, they would often just give food to anybody who was around. This is a great celebration time. And David is not demanding anything. He's just saying, whatever seems right to you, give that to us. To him and his hungry men. Trusting that God could provide for him through this man. He demands nothing. He wants only to be treated fairly. But guess what? That's not what always happens, is it? Look at verse 9. So when David's young men came, they spoke to to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. So they show up. They share their heart with Nabal. They demand nothing. They sought peace upon your house. Here's what we did. Go ask your young men all the things we did to minister. Go ask them. Find out if this is true or not. If we really protected you. And then do what you think is right. Give to us whatever you find right in your hand. They demand nothing. They approach him in a very kind and godly way. So potential stumbling blocks that can provoke our flesh. Number one, a lost friend. Number two, dealing with harsh and evil people. Number three, being treated unfairly. All of this ties into these next two verses. Then it says, Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? Let me paraphrase. Who does he think he is? Do you think he knew who David was? What do you think the answer is? Unless he's living in a cave. David had slayed Goliath. Do you think people heard about that? Might have been around in Israel. Nabal might have been there watching. I don't know. Here's the point. David had gone out and led the armies to, to kill the Philistines. He had been married to Michael, the daughter of Saul. There's no way in the world that this guy couldn't have known David. So when he says, who is David? It's not a question. Because all of Israel knew who he was. What it really is, is a clear and direct insult upon David. Who does this guy think he is? David. Now, Nabal's starting to show his character, isn't he? He's a fool. He's a man of physical wealth who is spiritually bankrupt. He's a man who has no character. He's a full-fledged attack upon a man's pride. And you know what? Can I tell you something? Let me just be real personal with you. Is this not one of the hardest things in the world to deal with? When someone just gets in your chest with both feet and just insults the tar out of you. Doesn't your flesh want to reach out and touch someone? (laughs) I mean, you have got to, Lord help. Because if you don't, I'm going to drop this guy like a bag of hammers. You know what I'm saying? That's what happens because our flesh, you know, we're walking in the spirit. Hope You should be walking in the spirit, but our flesh is always, you know, we got to drag this dead carcass around until we die, right? And we're dragging it around, and as soon as I get, ah! And it's, it's true of all of us, but you know, especially us guys, and maybe if it's just me, then Lord help me. But I'll tell you what, there's a part of you that, who do you, who do you think you're talking to, right? Now, you might not even say it, but it runs through your head, doesn't it? Who does this guy think he's talking to? And that, here comes the word. Who's David? Who do you think he is? Son of Jesse. I'm I'm impressed. And then, if that wasn't enough to slam him, look what he says next. Who is David? Who is he? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. You know what he says here? He deepens the insult, saying that he is simply a rebellious servant. And the truth is, David has been a faithful servant to a king who's been throwing spears at him. He's not been perfect, but he's been faithful. 
And what he's trying to say is, oh, you were a servant, and you ran, and you're in hiding, and who are you? And, and he's really attacking him. David, again, had blown it before. He was a sinner like we all are. But indeed, he had been a faithful man. He had been submitted to an ungodly king. In the last chapter, he had just spared his life. Now watch, watch the character of Nabal come out. Look what it says. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who I do not know where they are from? Here's I, 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 I. Whose riches are these? They're his. In his mind, right? There's no thought of God here. This is where you find out the heart of a man with great wealth and what does he do with it? Does he hold on to every nickel? Does he hoard it all? Does he act like it's his? Or does he realize that it's God's and hold it lightly in his hands? And when he sees an opportunity to minister to someone else, he says, it's God's anyway, let me give you some of it. Amen? We see the heart of Nabal. He's living up to his name. He is a man with no character. True biblical generosity doesn't think, this is mine and I'll share it with you. It thinks all that I have belongs to the Lord. And so, of course, you can have some. In a sense, the other person has as much a right to it as you do because it's all God's. So he doesn't want to share his abundance. He wants to keep it all for himself. And you know what? What's interesting to me, I find it interesting that it's his bread and the water and the meat. He didn't want to give what was his. And yet our Savior gave his body for us. Amen? And if we're to be Christ-like, He gave all that we might have eternal life. How in the world can we be holding anything back? Lord, help us to hold lightly to the things of this world. You know what, though, sadly most men respond to Jesus and His act of incredible grace the same way Nabal did to David. Here's what they say, who's Jesus? Have you ever seen people talk like that? They mock the name of our Savior. Can I tell you something again? Pastor Day's personal opinion. I am sick and tired of hearing my Savior's name cursed. I'm sick of it. And I'll tell you what else. I am never, ever, ever, knowingly ever again going to take God's money and go see a movie where they curse His name. I'm just so fed up with it. You know what? It just nauseates me because you know what? How can we call that entertainment when they blaspheme our Savior? They're saying, who's Jesus? And they know, well, the most of the movie is good. And I go on these Christian lines, well, they only curse his name 11 times, and they act like that's good. They curse it once. You know what, if they were cursing your, heaven, your earthly dad, would you go to that movie? If it was a movie mocking your earthly dad? I know it's Pastor Dave's opinion, all right? But I'll tell you what, I believe it's God's heart too, amen? I mean, if we really love him, isn't he more important than our entertainment? Can't we find something to entertain us that doesn't mock our Savior? They're saying, who's David? Now they say, who's Jesus? Who is he? Pride and arrogance and an overestimation of self-worth got Satan cast out of heaven. Amen? And it's going to keep billions of people from entering it. Because they are so filled with self, they don't think they need God. They don't realize they're sinners in need of a Savior. They mock the name of our Savior. You know what? May we live so sold out for God, they don't say, who's Jesus? They say, who's Jesus? Tell me about Him. Look at your life. Dude, there's something different about you. Tell me about this Jesus that you serve. Amen? You know what? We shouldn't be surprised when the world blasphemes our Savior, but... Lord, may our lives not blaspheme your name. May our lives bring glory and honor to your name. May people want to know the Savior we serve because we live so sold out and set apart for him. So a fleshly response from a godly king, potential stumbling blocks, number one, a lost friend, the loss of fellowship or encouragement or accountability of one I look up to. Number two, dealing with harsh and evil people. Number three, being treated unfairly. Number four, being disrespected and insulted. Now let's look at David's response. And we're going to see that unlike last time, when he went up and cut the robe, this time he's going to respond in the flesh. And because he does, the response is going to be totally different. Now verse 12. So David's young, young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Now I'm pretty impressed with these guys actually. Because they mock David and they just go, okay. 
And they might have been thinking on the way back, this guy is so in trouble. You know what I mean? I don't know. But they didn't respond. They just went back and told David. I'm telling. But they went back and they told David exactly what he said. They didn't take action. They went back to him. They, and you know what, guys? How should you and I respond? We should walk away and take it to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Instead of responding and lashing out, we should walk away and take it to the throne and give it to the Lord. Last verse we're going to look at tonight. Look at verse 13. Then David said to his men, let's turn to the Lord and seek him in prayer. Is that what he says? No. Everyone gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with its supplies. You know what David does? He says, really? What did you call me? What did he say? What? Tell me that again. What did he say? Get your swords. Right? And not only that, let me take 400 guys with me. I only have 200 guys to watch this stuff, and I'm taking 400 guys, and we'll show Nabal... What's up? Amen? And this is how we can respond in our flesh. Somebody insults us, and we think, who does he think he's talking to? Now, that's not our spirit. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's our flesh responding. Amen? And David, the wickedness, the unfair treatment. You know, Samuel's gone. You know, and he just responds in the flesh. And guys, if we are not walking in the fullness of the Spirit, we will respond in the flesh. Amen? This is why we need to open every, spend every day, every morning, open up the Word of God. Amen? We desire the Word of God more than our necessary food. We need to start our day in His presence and seek His face. And then as we walk with Him, instead of listening to something else, let's listen to worship music. Let's listen to teaching tapes. Let's keep our eyes focused on Him. And as we walk through our day, as we're walking in the Spirit, if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Amen? But see, we see here that David right now is responding in the flesh, and I know that nobody else here has ever done that. Again, David's thinking, he could, I don't know, and Lord forgive me if I'm putting too much into David's mouth here, but you know, Nabal's a man of pride, and it's going to cost him dearly, and it will. We'll see it at the end, next week. But you know what? It appears at this point you know, that David's going to come, the giant slayer, the mighty warrior, and Nabal is about to get tore up. He has no idea what's coming. At the same time, He's only going to get tore up if God allows him to get tore up. Amen? You know what? Being men and women who must die daily to our flesh, we all no doubt can relate to this reaction. You know, you go to work, you work really hard, and then the person doesn't pay you. I won't mention a name, but somebody that's very close to me that I know had a driveway that he did, and the guy said, well, the corner's here, I'm really dead. and he held back a lot of money. I forget how much, but it was like 15 grand. So he went over there the next week, and when the guy was gone, and jackhammered out the entire driveway. That's the fleshly response. Amen? Now, part of you goes, yeah, you know what I mean, right? You know, you hold back some money, really, okay. You know, you, know, you come back, your driveway, you know, you didn't pay for it, so you're not getting it, you know? Now... That's not how we're supposed to respond. Now we all laugh and go, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. But no, don't do that. <laughs> now, you know what? There's another extreme. And, my, you know, and I hate to I won't, I won't embarrass her a little bit, but a few years ago, it's actually been seven or eight years ago, right when we moved here to plant the church, we had moved out of one house into another, and we had rented the place, and we had given them a pretty sizable deposit, thousands of dollars. And if any of you know my wife for five minutes, you'll know that she is the cleanest person on this planet. And so he, the, the landlord, we lived there for quite a while, would come over and mow the lawn, and she would give him lemonade and share Jesus with him. And, and our house, he would even come in and tell us he's blown away how clean the house is. He can't even believe it. So we move out. We move to our place. And my wife spends three days after we move out cleaning that house. I've ne I mean, you could have eaten off the floor anywhere in that house, right? And she thought, I just want to bless him. I want him to remember all the words I've shared with him about the Lord. I just want to minister to this guy. And so we move out, and all of a sudden we don't get our deposit. And you know, when you move into a house and you have a big down payment, sometimes you have no money. And we had no money. And this was thousands of dollars. And I'm, you know, every day you run out to the mailbox. Where's that? And it doesn't come. So finally, I call the guy on the phone, and he says to me on the phone, he says, well, you know what, Dave, you're not getting any of your deposit back. That place was a pigsty. And I'm like, pardon me? 
I'm glad he was not standing next to me. I might have been in jail and never been in Santa Cruz. I don't know. And I'm like, what are you talking My wife had pulled the vents up and cleaned inside the vents. The stove, I mean, I'm like, dude, you're out of your mind. I go, are you? And my wife heard and my wife started weeping, which only made me more mad. I want to jerk him through the phone. You know what I mean? I did. I'm just like, now I'm just confessing openly. Sinner in need of a savior. Amen. I was not walking in the fullness of the spirit at that moment. Okay. But you know what happened? I love this. I went to bed. We were both upset. I went to bed and I'm like, man, you know, and my wife, the next day, the next day, my wife had got, I got up in the morning. My wife had got up early in the morning and written a letter. And she wrote the letter, and she said, I want you to read this, and it was awesome. She said to the man, she said, you know what? If that money means that much to you, just keep it. What I want you to remember about all the time, I want you to remember all the times we talked about Jesus on the back porch. I want you to know that he loves you. The money's not important to us. If God wants us to have it, he'll replace it. God bless you. I'm going to continue to pray for you. I read that, and I went, oh. (laughs) My wife was being Abigail. You know what I mean? It was like she was getting my, she, you know, oh, get your, get your eyes back. All right, Pastor Dave, get your eyes back on Jesus over here. And I will confess the biggest part for me was not the money. It was seeing my wife hurt. And those of you guys who are husbands, you know how you feel. You know what? When we are insulted, the Lord would have us bear it with love and kindness. The Bible says we don't overcome evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. You know what? It says in Matthew, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. You know how we can tell where we are spiritually, you guys? It's not how we respond to the people that love us and are kind. It's how do we respond when people are unfair, when they're harsh, when they're evil, when they're ungodly. How do we respond then? That tells us how we're really doing spiritually. And David doesn't show Nabal the same kindness he showed Saul. I find that interesting. It could be that sometimes we have certain people that we show a greater level of respect to because of their position. But the Bible says that God is no respecter of men or position or title. We need to show the same respect to all men. Amen? And show them the same honor and minister to all of them. If they are the the poorest person living in the gutter or the president of the United States, you love them both the same. Amen? Amen? You treat them both with kindness and love and mercy and you reach out to them and we need to have the same passion for them both. And again, this is the true measure of character. Not how we deal with our superiors, but how we deal with those who may be in our position or in our mind in a position below ours. Most of us have responded, most of us would have responded to Nabal just the way David did. But you know what? While our sympathies may be with David, our hearts and our obedience must be with Jesus. Amen? Jesus is our example. And think about, this is, David wasn't given some food for some work he did. They beat our Savior till he was not even recognizable as a man. They scourged him. They mocked him. They spit in his face. And then they crucified him. And what did he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's our example. Amen? We need to respond the way that our Savior does. David is about to blow it in a big way by responding in the flesh instead of walking in the Spirit. So come back next week, and we're going to see how God will use a humble and submitted woman to help get David back on track. God's going to use this woman, Abigail, to help get David's eyes back where they need to be, much like he used my wife with our landlord. You know, praise God for people around us who will remind us of what it's really all about. Amen? To get our eyes back on Jesus Christ. So, a fleshly response from a godly king. Potential stumbling blocks. One, a lost friend, lost fellowship, friendship, encouragement, and accountability. Number two, dealing with harsh and evil people. You're going to every day. You need to walk in the Spirit. Being treated unfairly. We all have been. Being disrespected and insulted. And then finally, we see how David responded. He didn't pray, but he responded in anger. Guys, the next time you're about to respond in your flesh, instead of, you know, reaching out with your hands or, or you know, speaking back with your mouth, may we drop to our knees and seek the Lord and ask Him to help us to honor Him in the midst of it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We praise You. 
We worship you, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that with the trials, with temptation, Lord, you always make the way of escape. When there's an opportunity for us to walk in the flesh, your spirit is always ready, willing, and able, Lord, to help us to obey and walk in the center of your will. Father, I do pray that we would not see the world the way the man sees it. But Lord, we'd see the world through your eyes. We would love people the way you love them. Father, we would have the heart of our Savior as he hung on the cross and he forgave people who tortured him. Lord, help us to not just live for you when everything's perfect, but to live lives set apart unto you when from the world's perspective, everything seems to be falling apart. Lord, we thank you that you're sovereign, that you're in control, that nothing happens by chance in your kingdom. And Lord, do whatever you need to do in our lives to conform us more into your image. Lord, if that means trials, then bring the trials. Lord, that we might become more like you, that you might be glorified in our lives. Lord, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Help us to walk in the center of your will. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. let's stand and close the worship song.